You may be seated and turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. As you're turning there and if you're new to the Bible or maybe new to Christianity, we've printed the text for you on page 9 of your worship guide. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of those Bibles out of the pew rack and take it home with you. Um, as you're turning there, um, in a few weeks, uh, probably the first Sunday of December, we're going to be installing Jeff Wilkins as our new assistant pastor of discipleship. So put that on your radar. Um, we are very thankful uh, that the Lord has given him to us. I'm very glad that him and Kathy are, are here, and especially for his service um, over the last six months. We're going to be talking about money today, more specifically generosity, even more specifically than that, the generous heart of God. Um, so if you want to leave now, there's your warning. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 15. This is God's word. We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this manner, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. All flesh is like grass and is beauty like the flowers of the field. And the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, 
Would you hear the prayer that we just sung to you, Holy Spirit? Come, speak to us from the word and speak to us about Jesus. And give us a desire for holiness. And then empower it so that we might believe that in Christ we lack nothing. And so we would ask this. Make us as generous as you are to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We frequently say around here, if you're visiting, that God's mission is to do undo everything that's broken by the curse of sin. Sin entered into the world and, and broke all of creation, and it broke us as well. And part of that mission, then, includes putting right our use of the resources that He's entrusted to us. Because left to ourselves, we all bend inward. We're, we're like a spring that's when straightened out quickly defaults back when let go of the tension, defaults back to its original bent. And, and that original bent of our hearts is to bend inward in selfishness, to spiral inward on ourselves, to use all things for our benefit and our good, to advance our purposes in the world. And the tendency is to think, therefore, and this is how we typically reason, is to think that God is like us. That he's stingy, he's withholding, he's reluctant to give. That God withholds his favor for small offenses. We think of God as quick to point out the smallest errors in our ways and then withholds from us until we perform better. Now, very few of us would admit that outwardly. We wouldn't make that the confession of our faith in a public setting, but that's what we default to. And yet... And yet, what we have seen over and over and over again through all false series is that God's heart is, as he said, all the way back in the book of Exodus. When he announces to Moses, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the heart of God. And he's been revealing it from Genesis 1-1 all the way through to the end of the Bible. As we saw last week, Jeff so carefully, skillfully pointed out that God is a God who creates a hospitable place for his people. A home where sinners are welcomed in, where he throws a lavish party for us. And we saw in Jonah that he's the God who pursues a rebellious prophet like Jonah, rescues him, makes a home for him. He's a God who, who instead of pouring out his wrath on rebellious Nineveh, goes out and gives Jonah as a gift to warn them of his coming judgments. God's heart is bent too, you see. His heart is bent towards generous grace and profound love that delivers, provides, rescues, redeems. His wrath will come. It's inevitable. We're warned. His wrath will come. But before his wrath comes, he gives. He gives his own son as a substitute for the sin that we have committed, for the wrath that we deserve. Instead of giving us what we deserve, he gave his son, his only begotten son 
Because he's a generous God who's bent towards grace and generosity. And Paul even now here as he brings us into the heart of God and reminds us that to be fully alive, to be a fully flourishing human being, we need to become like the one who made us in his image, to become a people who give generously and joyfully. And you see even here in in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul even models this approach when he's talking about generosity to the Corinthian church. Verse 8, he's generous and gracious in dealing with the hearts of the Corinthian church. I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. Doesn't finger wag at them. I'm not, I'm not giving this to you as a command. I'm going to compel you with the love of God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, if you're a visitor and you're, you're thinking, great, another church that's talking about money, you may have either come at a good time or a bad time. That's up for you to decide. And we wanted to have this discussion in this series on God's heart. It would be, we would be amiss to skip over this, to not talk about generosity and money. But it's also a good time. We like to talk about generosity and money when our finances are in a good place as a church. God's been generous to design. We're not running a deficit. We're able to do some new initiatives in the past year, even throughout COVID. We're able to make repairs on a 200-year, almost 200-year-old building that needed it. We're able to set aside money for church planting. We give away over 20% of what we take in in our plate. What we've been entrusted with, we send out. We're able to continue to do that. We're not running a deficit. Generally, as a church, we're not trying. We often say this. We are not trying to raise money but to raise generous disciples of Jesus. We're not trying to make money. We're trying to make disciples of Jesus who use our resources for Jesus' mission and out of Jesus' heart towards us. That's our end goal. So it's, to be honest, it's a little awkward at times to talk about money. As Americans, we don't like to talk about it. Study after study after study will, will tell you Americans don't like to talk about money. And yet, the use of possessions is talked about over 2,100 times in Scripture. That's three times more than love, seven times more than prayer, eight times more than unbelief. The Bible just puts its finger on this area of our lives over and over and over again. Jesus talks about money more than he talks about anything else. He talks more about money than he does about sex and sexuality, more about money than he talks about marriage and relationships. 17 out of Jesus's 38 parables deal with possession. It's over half the time that he's teaching. He's talking about this area of our lives. And here's the truth in the matter, and here's why. Suffering is difficult. That's a platitude. You can put that on your 
cross-stitch that and put it on a, a pillow. Suffering is difficult. It challenges our faith. But here's what you won't find on a placard or a pillow. Prosperity and ease has always been a greater threat to the faith of God's people in suffering. The writer of Proverbs puts it well. I call it the great middle class prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches, he prays. Because if I'm poor, I may steal and profane your name. I don't want to do that. But, and this is the more dangerous part, particularly for us, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? In Deuteronomy 8, God warns Israel that if they, when they get into the promised land, they're going to find prosperity and ease there because he's establishing his kingdom. And then he tells them, once you get in there and I give you the prosperity and ease to which I'm bringing you, you will abandon me. Jesus warned that the cares of this world and the desire for other things are going to choke out God's word. It's too dangerous to his word. One, Satan comes and snatches the word away so that it never takes root. The other danger is that it will take root, grow, and then the cares of this world and the desire for other things will choke out the word. And so it proves to be unfruitful in our lives. One author says it this way. Many of us feel that if we only had a little more money or possessions, somehow our life would get straightened out. We could pay off our bills and have money left over to give to God. We could get out of our present financial mess. We could live with some security for once, maybe feel at peace with God. But perhaps something is fundamentally faulty with this strategy of getting more and more. Though we are wealthier than much of the rest of the world, our lives are filled with anxiety and dissatisfaction. And even when we get that pay raise, we don't give any more to God's work. I find myself in that, to be honest with you. Now contrast that, going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, contrast that with the Macedonian churches that Paul is commending to the Corinthian church. The Macedonian churches are in modern-day northern Greece, and the context is that Paul has been going around the churches that he's planted, and he's collecting an offering for the churches, for the Christians in Jerusalem. And from the Macedonian churches, he's holding them out and saying, look, here's a model for it looks like to walk in the ways of Jesus. The Macedonian churches had experienced tremendous economic hardship. Either brought on, we're not quite sure, by famine in the region. Most likely arising from conflict. Some type of kingdom against kingdom conflict in the region. Whatever it was, Paul calls it a severe test of affliction. But God had done something in the midst of their affliction to these churches. In the midst of their hardship, Paul calls it a work of grace. And this work of grace, perhaps even a revival amongst them, was evident in how they used their financial resources. Verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, he's writing to the Corinthians about the Macedonians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. 
For in a severe test of affliction, he's loading on words to describe how difficult their circumstances were. A severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Now, if you've got your Bibles, turn over one chapter to me, with me to chapter 9, verse 6. When Paul makes this promise, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And what had happened in the Macedonian churches, they had caught a vision for God's heart towards them and had become generous as a part. There is an economy in God's kingdom. And it is a generous economy because it's a generous kingdom built by and for a generous God where he lives with his people. This is why he loves cheerful givers. Because giving brings him joy. He loves to do it. God is as generous as giving. And that's woven into the very fabric of God the Trinity. And he's inviting us into his heart. You think about this. There's one God the Bible teaches. There's one God. There's one God. Mark referred to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Shema the, is one God. One God. But this one God exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Children, think about your catechism question there. But have you ever stopped to think, how can that be? If you haven't, you should. How can that be? How can there be only one God, and yet that one God exists in three persons? Because God in His nature gives. The Father eternally gives His being to the Son. John Tells us, Jesus tells us in John chapter 5, the Father has life in himself, for he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. God the Father is eternally going out to God the Son. God the Holy Spirit is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And this creates a dance of generosity in the being of God, the members of this Trinity sharing their being with each other in overflowing generosity and Love. Now consider this, probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3, 16. Even if you're not a Christian, you've heard this, you've seen it on signs at football games. For God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? His only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. You don't get into the kingdom of God by buying in. You get into the kingdom of God because God generously gives. The Father gave him his son. His son took on our flesh. And Jesus gave himself. Now we're back to verse 9 in chapter 8. That's the shape of the gospel. For you know the grace 
of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The Father gave the Son, the Son gave himself, and you stay in the kingdom of God, not because of how you perform in God's kingdom, not by what you bring to the table. You stay in the kingdom of God because God is a keeper and he gave his spirit John 14, 16. I will ask, Jesus says, the Father, and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit live in generous giving of themselves with each other. And out of the overflow of that heart, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been given generously to all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. We lack nothing. And then that becomes the pattern for living and the pattern for blessing. Now verse 7. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and even in our love for you. Like he's like, you've excelled in these things. Even our love for you is, is an excellent thing for you. See also that you excel in this act of grace also. This grace of generosity. If you hoard your financial resources, you are living out of line with the heart of God and the nature of the gospel. Now we're going to go to back to chapter 9, verse 6. And God will discipline you. If you follow the way of Jesus, then you can hold on to this promise. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You can you can bank your life on that promise. Now let's talk about the minimum here. What are we talking about? Well, the minimum is the tithe. Tithing is a word that means 10%. Throughout the Bible, the first 10% is given to God and to his temple, then to his church. A tithe, by definition, is 10%. You can't tithe 2% or 5%. You're not tithing unless you're giving the church 10% of the money that God has entrusted to you. But that's the bare minimum. And the people of God who live in his kingdom because of the overflow of his generosity shouldn't be asking what's the least I might give, but what's the most that I can give. And you see... What happens is that generosity keeps our money from owning us. It puts our resources at Jesus' disposal for his kingdom. Tithing is, is the first step, the first of many steps towards generosity that protects ourselves from money owning us. Because the problem is not with money. It's with the love of money. 
And money and our possessions are terrible masters. They always demand more and more and never bring satisfaction. Anybody who bought the dream of owning a house understands this. It always demands more and more of you and never brings you satisfaction. It never causes joy. Nothing we possess can cause joy, but instead is often the source of worry. Contrast that with the Macedonia experience in verse 2. It's such a, a strange combination of experiences. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. When joy and poverty meet, it causes generosity. When riches and sin meet, it causes worry, greed, and selfish ambition. Which side of that do you want to be on? This is why Jesus said, you can't love God and money. You'll be devoted to one and hate the other. And by setting aside the first 10%, it reminds us. This is more than just an act. This is, in fact, a generous command of God. I want you to be free. It reminds us of two things. All things belong to God. He's just entrusted this to me. And secondly, I can trust him with all things. And when we pray, God, give us today our daily bread, we're asking God to meet our daily needs. And then when he meets our daily needs and we hold back the tithe, we are showing that we value the gift more than the giver. You see, in that moment when you sit down and you have to write your tithe check out or tell your bank to send it to us, which is often the case, in that moment, that represents real loss. For many of us, 10% is about the margin that we have in our budgets. That 10% is a sacrifice. It means you're going to have to cut down on eating out. It means you won't have that money to spend on other things, the things that you've dreamt about buying, the vacations that you've longed to take your children on, the emergency fund that you've wanted to save up. Your retirement dollars might be represented by that 10%. It represents very real loss and feels like death. But if I can take us down to Malachi 3. Don't worry about turning there. You probably haven't been in Malachi this week and I may not remember where it is. So let me just read it to you. Malachi 3. Because this call to be generous and to start with the tithe as is the generous heart of God Paul reiterates it in 2 Corinthians 8. I'm not commanding and I'm doing so much better. I'm going to compel you with God's promises. With the overflowing grace of God's heart. And he does, Malachi does, God does the same thing in Malachi 3. When he says to them, Malachi 3.8, you are cursed with a curse. You are robbing from me by withholding your tithe. But that accusation of Malachi 3, that to withhold the tithe is to rob from God, is also attached with the promise. That's the generous heart of God. 
He doesn't just want to condemn. His promises draw us into new life. Malachi 3.10 now. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Speaking of the temple here. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations shall call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. I'm going to make you prosper. Stop robbing from me. You can trust me. And when you trust me, Things prosper in my kingdom. And that principle is again reiterated in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Here's where the health and wealth gospel gets us wrong. What it does with that promise is that it says, If you tithe, God will prosper you financially. Like God's running the greatest Ponzi scheme in the history of mankind. You invest 10%, God's going to make you a rich man or woman. But do you see what Paul does with this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? God loves a cheerful giver. And God is also able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency In all things, you may abound in every good work. The bountiful reaping that is being promised in Malachi 3.10 that's married to 2 Corinthians 9, 6, 7, and 8 is this. It's not material riches, but the spiritual riches that by God's grace, I might abound in every good work as I'm depositing my tithe and giving generously to the missions and missionaries and ministries of God around the world. I'm doing so in faith that God will increase his blessing so that I might abound in every good work. Tithing is not only important to Christian growth, it's essential. This isn't sanctification by works. You're not buying God's work. You are not obligating God to your tithe. He needs nothing. He owns everything. He has no shortage that he can be obligated by anything that you or I do in any manner whatsoever. God has obligated himself to you in this promise. That's grace. Because he's inviting us into his economy to partake of the riches that Jesus has earned for us. Now we're back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. God's going to give generously. If you give generously, God's going to give generously what he has stored up for you in Christ. What that's going to result with is more generosity for you. And what that will end with is thanksgiving to God. 
We have these spiritual, we have these spiritual resources stored up for you in heaven, earned by Jesus. They don't need to be bought by you. Jesus has earned them, stored them up. Riches purchased by the righteousness of Jesus, secured with his blood. And what ends up happening is that when we hoard and are not tithing and are not moving towards generosity, the Father withholds those as an act of fatherly discipline. If you withhold your tithe, and our generosity, God will withhold his grace from us. And you see what God is doing? He says, go ahead. Put me to the test. You don't get to test God anytime you want. You don't get to put God on trial. But when he has said, put me to the test. Keep me to this dynamic. See that if it's true. Bring in the full tithe of the storehouse and see if the window of heaven for, is open for you and I will pour down my blessing on you until you have no more need. And you'll find that that grace will increase your generosity. And you'll become like the Macedonians where the entire church around the kingdom is going, God, we praise you for that, for them. I think it's fair to say you can't say I'm thankful for the forgiveness of my sins and then not give. Giving generously is a barometer of my gratitude and my faith. It's why God loves a joyful giver, the person who has been grasped by the gospel in the midst severe test of affliction and poverty gives joyfully because my heart has found contentment. Not in what I can gain, but in Christ who loves me and gave himself for me. Now, I know I've gone on long, but I want to give you a vision for the grace of God. How it can radically change the world when it starts to radically change our hearts towards our possessions. But to do that, let me put this in context of how much we spend as Americans on non-essential stuff. And I'm going to give you these numbers to say there's money here for us to not just tithe, but to give an amazing generosity. Here's some numbers. This is between 2000 and 2005. So almost 15 to 20 years ago. So you do the inflation numbers on your own. Between 2000 and 2005, Americans spent $15.2 billion on boats, engines, and other marine products. Between 2000 and 2005, Americans spent $27.9 billion on candy. I'm pretty sure my household was a fair contributor to those. $29.7 billion on sporting goods. $29.8 billion on alcoholic beverages. $36.5 billion on pets, toys, and playground equipment. $45 billion in state lotteries. 
$59.4 billion on jewelry and watches. Those are pretty staggering numbers until you get to this one. $203.7 billion on all entertainment products and services combined. Almost $300 billion on travel and tourism. And compare that with approximately $188 billion that Americans gave away during that period to all charitable organizations put together. And if you don't think that we're like a spring that is spiraling inward, look at the numbers. In 2011, 10 years later, that number was $1.2 trillion on unessential stuff. I often say that the world doesn't need the American church to export our spirituality. The worldwide church needs two things from the American church. Our money and our seminary education. And both those things need to go out with amazing generosity. Those are the easiest things for us to export. And they're the fewest things that we send out. Let me give you now some numbers for a vision for tithing. This is Craig Blumberg wrote a great book on this. He says this, If all American Christians had given away just 10% of their income after taxes, after taxes, just 10%, if all American Christians, that would give another $133 billion a year that would be used to free up for whatever purposes the church chose to use it above and beyond any ministry that's going on right now. To give you an idea of what that means, that means sending out, I did a little math on this, 300,000 additional missionaries and church planters with a minimum five-year budget into the world saying, here's five years You don't have to raise another dime. Just go do gospel ministry for the next five years. And we could do that every single year. If the church would just do the bare minimum in tithe. Now, Jesus has made this promise to us. That he will return when the gospel is preached To the whole world. If the church would just simply tithe. That is give the bare minimum. The world would be covered with the good news of Jesus Christ. It would be blanketed with it. And then Jesus' return would be more imminent. And then the promise, we're now back to Malachi 3, would hold. If you don't withhold, remember the promise, if you withhold the tithe, you're robbing from me. If you give, what will end up happening is this. So imagine us sending out that number of missionaries and seminary education to train the under-trained pastors of the world And then as a result, 
Then all the nations will call the Lord blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, we confess, I confess for us and for myself that we hoard and rob from you. So we're so thankful that in your generosity you won't leave us to spiral inwardly. But again and again and again go out after us like the good shepherd to rescue lost sheep. And that when we come home, we find a party waiting for us. Make us generous. Free us from our love of money and for our pursuit of comfort and ease. May we be burdened to take away the burdens of others. For this is what your heart of compassion has done for us in Christ. And now as we come to your table, to the feast that you set for us in Christ, for this foretaste of the new heavens and new earth, when we will no longer eat by faith, but by sight, beholding the beauty of our bridegroom and enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb. Oh, God, stir us and free us from our pursuit of comfort and ease. For that has already been secured for us in Christ. Make us generous as we come to the table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.